Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you uh, to get them out and to turn with me again to the book of Acts. It's been about a month since we have been uh, in the book of Acts and we return to it this morning. I promise, as I had to remind myself this week, that we are in the home stretch uh, of this study, which has uh, been almost two years now, just a year and a half, I think. Uh, since we began our study of the book of Acts, we are almost done this history of the early church. And so I encourage you to turn uh, to Acts chapter 25, which is where we find ourselves this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's some Bibles available for you on the back table. Or just follow along in the insert that's found in your bullets. And I want to begin this morning, since it's been a while since we've been in this book, just remembering a bit where we are. Just thinking about the book of Acts and thinking about where we are in chapter 25. And if you remember at the very beginning of this history of the early church, it was a beginning that began with waiting. Right? God's people were waiting. They were waiting because Jesus Himself commanded them to wait. Wait for the Spirit who I will send in my absence. And then once that Spirit came in power, everything became movement. Everything started moving. And indeed, most of the book of Acts is a whirlwind of motion with the good news spreading to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And at the tip of the spear of that movement that we've seen throughout the book of Acts, was Saul the Pharisee turned Paul the Apostle. He was a man committed to the destruction of the church. And yet grabbed and gripped by the grace of God, he became its most vocal ally. His calling was unique. Remember, Paul was called by God to take the Gospel, not just to the Jews on the outer edges of the empire, but to the Gentiles, to those who weren't ethnic Jews. To those who didn't know the stories, who didn't know the laws. And his message for them was, come. Come to Jesus. He's all that you need. And this was indeed an unpopular message for many. Many who had been steeped for generations in religion, in tradition. And so here we are at the end of this history book, a history of the book that began with waiting, that was filled with motion, and now here we are at the end, almost in an anticlimactic way, waiting again. Paul is waiting. He is in change in the city of Caesarea. He's been arrested at the demands of the Jews. He's been put in prison by the Romans. And he's been there for two years. Two years. He's already given three defenses of his ministry in the Gospel that he proclaims. But as we looked at the last time we were together in this book about a month ago, waiting on God is never a waste of time. God knows what He's doing, even if Paul doesn't. 
So this morning, we turn to Acts chapter 25. This is a hard passage for me to know how to preach this week. I wrestled with this because essentially Acts chapter 25 is a, is a scene-setting passage. It's setting up this big showdown or this big scene that's, that's coming in the next chapter. But to take the two chapters together would be just a giant bite. We'd spend most of our time simply reading it. But we'll get to that speech, we'll get to that showdown, but this week we're just going to set it up. There's some political maneuvering, so to speak, that has to settle before we can get where we need to go. And so listen as I read Acts chapter 25. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter, all 27 verses. Listen as I read. This is God's holy word. I'm going to start chapter 24, verse 27, just so we don't blow over the fact that Paul's been here for a while. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you Go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on the charges before you? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is anything to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my tribunal and I ordered that the man be brought. 
When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We all love those David and Goliath stories, don't we? You know what kind of stories I'm talking about. Stories of the underdog. Stories of the one who pushes through against seemingly insurmountable odds. Our love affair with the story of Cinderella is that kind of story. Cinderella, the underprivileged sister with the great and privileged stepsisters. In fact, that very story of Cinderella has made its way into collegiate sports. We just finished March Madness, and every March in college basketball, there is a a Cinderella story. Some underdog team who takes down the big one. The first reading as we read this story of Paul before Festus the governor and King Agrippa. The first reading, it seems like this is one of those stories. That's why I titled the sermon. I'm not always proud of my sermon titles, but I like this one. Power pomp, politics, and Paul the prisoner. There's this striking contrast in Acts chapter 25 between power and pomp and politics and Paul, the prisoner. But here's the thing. This isn't the Cinderella story. And Paul really isn't an underdog. First of all, we, we know the end of the story, or at least we can figure out the end of the story. Paul's not going to get out of these chains and rule the empire. We know the end of the story. He's going to remain in these chains until his death. There is no happy ending on the earthly plane for Paul. But secondly, Paul 
really isn't an underdog any more than David in the story of David and Goliath was an underdog. Because just like David, Paul has the living God in his corner. What looks one way to the world is so often simply not the reality of things. And this, I think, is an important and significant point. That as followers of Jesus, as those who have been made new, as those who have had their minds renewed and are continuing to have their minds renewed by the Spirit of God, We ought never to take things in our lives just as we see them or just as they are on the surface, but constantly evaluate in light of God's Word, in light of God's promises, what is really going on here? What is God doing? It may feel like the odds are against me. It may feel... Like there is no way out. But that's not the reality. Not when you serve Yahweh. Not when you serve the God of the universe. Paul, excuse me, Luke gives us a lot of detail in this passage. Lots of historical information that I'm going to try not to bore you with. But I do want you to understand what's going on. But in doing so, as as he lays this picture before us, Luke sets up two comparisons that I think ought to remind us of God's promises and encourage us in the reality that we so easily don't see when we live our lives. This is going to come as no surprise to you because we've been in the book of Acts for a long time, but these truths are not really new. They're things that we've looked at before. They're things that Luke has reminded us of before. But they're things I guarantee you forgot or you forget. The first one is this. God gives grace in the face of power and pomp. God gives grace in the face of power and pomp. If there's one thing that Paul learned in his ministry, and we can find this out through his writings as well as his life, it's that he didn't have all that it took. Now, Paul was a smart dude. He was a brilliant, capable guy. But even he was insufficient for the task that had been given him. In his weakness, he cries out over and over again how he needs strength, How the Lord will give grace sufficient for him. And in fact, in his weakness, and in the acknowledgement of his weakness, that's how God loves to glorify himself. We've looked at that theme before. We've wrestled with that theme before. And we see it again here. This passage begins with this, this change in provincial leadership. We left Paul a month ago. But in the end of chapter 24, we left Paul in the hands of Felix. Felix, remember, was this spineless governor of the region who was unwilling to do the right thing in light of the lack of evidence against the Apostle Paul for the charges that had been brought against him. 
he wasn't willing to do the right thing and let him go. Instead, he just simply ignores the case. He ignores Paul. He just kind of sweeps it under the carpet. Well, history tells us that Felix, who Luke just tells us was gone, Felix was actually removed by Rome in the year AD 60 because of his insufficient handling, not necessarily of Paul, but of other matters in his region. He just wasn't a good leader. And so, on the scene comes Porcius Festus. Now, we don't know much about this leader. His rule will be short. We know from history that it will only be two years. He will die in two years. But we do know that when Festus arrives on the scene, he hits the ground running, so to speak. I mean, he likely saw all that Felix had done and the mess that Felix had made and the fact that this whole region was going in a disastrous direction needs to stop the bleeding. So Festus arrives and immediately gets to work. He heads to the capital city of Jerusalem. And when he's in Jerusalem, what does Festus immediately become confronted with? Well, you'd think that after two years of Paul being off the streets, in prison, that all the turmoil, that all the hatred concerning him would have, would have died down a bit. But no, those zealous Jews, seeing an opportunity in this change of leadership, suddenly are all over Festus. Now there's nothing new, it's the same old stuff, the same old case, the same old insufficient evidence that we look at, that we've already looked at. But these Jews aren't content until Paul is dead. Really, the the hatred is striking. How hated Paul is in this region. Luke doesn't tell us if Festus knows that the Jews are planning an ambush. Maybe it just simply makes sense to Festus. I'm, hey, I'm headed to Caesarea anyway. Why don't you just come with me and we'll try him down there. We don't, we don't know exactly what was in Festus's mind. But he sets up this showdown between Paul and his old accusers with the old case once again in Caesarea. Luke obviously doesn't tell us Everything that happens. But what he does tell us is he sets up this scene between Paul and Festus first, and then Agrippa, as Agrippa comes in in a moment. What he tells us, what he shows us, is grace and courage in the midst of pomp and power. I mean, think about it. We've looked at Paul a lot. We, we followed him. We know that Paul is, is prone to discouragement, as we all are prone to discouragement. Paul is not some superhuman. He felt the hate. He felt the confusion. What are you doing? I've been sitting here for, for two years. Remember when Felix was in office, Felix would occasionally call for Paul to come visit him. And we talked about how every time Paul was was called by Felix, Paul had to think, is this the day that I'm going to be released? 
Is this the day that Felix has come to his senses and I will be let go? And I can head to Rome, which is where I know I need to go and where I know that the Lord wants me to be. And now, with Festus coming into office, Paul must have had a glimmer of hope. Perhaps now, Lord. Perhaps now, with with a more reasonable ruler, you will release me and I can head where I know I need to be. And yet, what happens here in this passage Nothing. In fact, things seem to go quickly backwards because Festus at one point was protective of Paul, knowingly or not, in not letting him travel that road from Jerusalem, excuse me, from Caesarea to Jerusalem, lest he get killed by the Jews. But now, now suddenly, Festus may be seeing the complicated nature of the case, now Festus suddenly says, well, Paul, maybe you should just travel up to Jerusalem. Maybe you want to be tried up there. I mean, did Festus know that that would be an easy way to just wipe his hands of this problem? Send Paul to Jerusalem. The assassins of the Jews would take him out and it would be over. This is going sour very quickly. Any hope that Paul had is fading fast. And Paul is seemingly helpless in the hands of the powerful. And then enters King Agrippa with all his pomp and with all his power. Just so you know, the the history, the Herodian dynasty had come into power in that region and had been in power for years and years. We've heard a lot of Herods, right? Even before Jesus was born, that family came into power as an ally, as a Jewish ally of Rome. And successive generations have ruled. And now we're to Herod Agrippa II. He's the son of Herod Agrippa I, who died back in chapter 12 of the book of Acts. And he comes on the scene. We're going to hear more about him next week. We don't know why he's here, but he comes with all the trappings of power and pomp. He is the king of this region. He is the boss. He is in charge. Not only that, but he's wretched. We could say not just power and pomp and politics, but also perversion. Because Herod Agrippa brings his sister Bernice with whom he has an incestuous relationship. Can you imagine Paul standing before this ruler in all its pomp, with all the hatred, with all the power, and then with the added perversion? And here's Paul in chains. You've likely heard this description of Paul. We don't know exactly what Paul looked like, but history gives us a brief description of him. The history books say this about the Apostle Paul, and I quote, a man short in stature, with a bald head, bowed legs, in good condition, eyebrows that met, a fairly large nose, and full of grace. Paul is not standing up before this tribunal 
this pomp and this power and this perversion as some six foot eight cut, booming voice kind of guy. No, this is Paul in weakness. And yet, with such courage, with such grace. And in this seemingly weak position, he's exactly where the Lord wants him to be. The Lord is on his side. He is giving testimony to Jesus in the halls of power. He's about to proclaim the King of Kings to a king. There's a lesson here for us, I think, not just about courage and about praying for grace to to speak, but also about a Christian's use of it, even in its brokenness, even in its perversion. See, I bring up the issue of Bernice and these rulers because all the power and the pomp that we've witnessed so far, it's not, it's not authority that's worthy of honor. And yet it is authority that's given by God. Paul will write in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And those that existed have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, for he is God's servant for your good. And so when Paul speaks here with the grace given him to be courageous and to be bold, he also speaks with respect. He speaks within the law. In fact, he uses the law itself to accomplish his own safety and and what he believes to be the purposes of God. Of course, Paul will not contradict God's law if he's asked to do that. It's clear that our citizenship in God's kingdom always trumps our citizenship in this kingdom, but it doesn't trample it. And Paul reminds us of that here. See, we live in a culture. Many of you, all of you know this, many of you send me articles occasionally about the cultural decline that we face. And we, we read the news or we see the news and we don't, by God's grace, we don't live on the doorsteps of, of ISIS where we're being asked to recant our faith or die. And I pray that isn't coming for our future generations. But we do live in a day and an age with increasingly ungodly agendas and cultural attacks. Business owners are being put out of work. They're being put out of business and having their life savings drained because of their commitment to God's Word and their desire to honor Him with their business. Maybe some of you here have been in situations, you live in fear yourselves about speaking out about your faith or about your convictions in your workplace for fear that that speaking out will bring consequences for you. 
I'm not saying that all these situations that you are faced with are, are easy decisions or simple situations. No, they're complex. They require wisdom. But Paul reminds us here that we need to pray for that grace to speak the truth in love. We need to pray for that wisdom and discernment to speak courageously the name of Christ and the truth of Christ when we have the opportunity to do so. Paul reminds us here that we as Christians are not to put our heads in the sand not to roll over and let whatever comes come our way, but to work within the structures that God has placed for righteousness and that the Gospel might go forth. We can talk about all sorts of ways that that applies to cultural issues like marriage, like the right to life. But that's for another discussion. Paul simply reminds us, speak, knowing that God is on your side. After all, verse 19, this, that's the heart of the matter, is verse 19, Felix's or Festus's words to Agrippa about Paul. Jesus wasn't some lunatic Paul didn't just assert that he was alive. He was indeed. He is indeed alive. So in the face of power and pomp, may we have the courage, may we have the grace to speak truth. And that leads us to the second comparison that we see in these verses And it's this, God is sovereign in the midst of political positioning. God is sovereign in the midst of political positioning. That's a truth that we need to be reminded of. Here we are some 18 months before our nation's next presidential election, and already the posturing and the positioning has begun. I've been reading a historical book recently filled with, um, with icebergs. I've been thinking about icebergs. I know that's an odd thing to think about. But I've been thinking about icebergs that float on the surface, but only one-eighth or so of the actual iceberg shows itself. And that's what makes icebergs so dangerous, is that as captain of a ship sails towards an iceberg and he sees it on the horizon, he knows that the most dangerous part of that iceberg is hidden. It's underneath. And he has no idea how big underneath it is. It's what lies below the surface that's most dangerous. But here in this passage, it's what lies below the surface that's the most wonderful thing. I'm flipping that illustration on its head because all Paul sees, all we see, is power and pomp and politics and positioning and perversion. 
These rulers are not holding justice up as their highest ideal. They are out for themselves and what will make themselves look best. Felix did it in the last chapter. Festus picks up where he left off. Even Paul's decision to appeal to Caesar, which he does here, that was his Roman right, was a difficult one. And it's going to be questioned in the next chapter. Was that the right move for Paul to make? Paul made that decision based on wisdom, based on his knowledge of the situation as it was presented to himself, and that's all that he could do. He wants to be in Rome. He knows that God wants him to be in Rome. And that's where he's going. Not on the timeline he thought, not in the way that he thought. But God is sovereign in the midst of all this political positioning. And Paul sees this as an opportunity. What is Paul, what, excuse me, what is the Lord trying to teach Paul through these two years, through these many defenses that he is forced to give? Perhaps patience. Perhaps humility. What is the Lord teaching you in your circumstances? Where you find yourself right now, waiting on Him. What what is He teaching you? I don't know. What is He teaching us as a nation? As we see it losing its way. I don't know, but I pray that we learn. And I know this, we ought not despair. Because even in the midst of political positioning, God is sovereign. See, Paul in Acts 25 is no David versus Goliath. Well, I guess we could say he is. In the same sense that David in the Old Testament was against Goliath. To the world it looked one way. But with the God of Yahweh behind David, it wasn't a fair fight at all. Courage with God on your side. Boldness knowing that God's purposes will be done. We see it here with Paul. And you know what? We see it, we saw it with the Lord Jesus. How thankful we are that the Lord Jesus in weakness, submitted himself to the will of the Father, willingly gave himself up in the midst of all the pomp and the power that he was against for us, for our salvation. May we find grace to help in our time of need. May we find grace flowing from that sacrifice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we recognize that this passage and this account in the life of Paul is more than just dead history. It is an account that is filled with life. It is an account that You, Holy Spirit, use and can use in the life of Your people to encourage and to remind 
of who You are and of what You call us to be. Father, in weakness, once again, we cry out for grace to speak with boldness, to speak with joy, to assert, as Paul did, that indeed there was one who died, but who didn't stay dead, who was raised to life, and who lives even now for us. And He is ours. And we are Yours. Oh Father, encourage us with these words. Impress them upon our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.